Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Just a quick warning to say the following episode does contain some strong language, which some listeners may find offensive. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have with me, James Warwick, the podcast where each week I sit down with a different guest as we discuss their career and unwrap the story on the worst gift they've ever been given. Joining me then on this week's episode is musician and composer Randy Edelman. After a successful solo career, which included a UK top 30 hit in 1975 with Uptown Uptempo Woman, Randy also wrote for some of the biggest artists in the world, including Barry Manilow, The Carpenters, Olivia Newton-John and Shirley Bassey, to name just a few. Alongside all of that, he's also scored some of the biggest films of the last 30 years, including Ghostbusters 2, The Mask and Kindergarten Cop. He stopped by to discuss his incredible career with me, and of course, he let me in on the worst gift he's ever been given. Randy, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Nice to be. I wish I was there. I'm here in the heart of uh, beautiful Beverly Hills, California, but I wish I was there in, in the beautiful rain, and I love that. Love say, the whole scene. I say at the moment, we're having a bit of what we would consider a heat wave here in the UK. I mean, it, it's still pretty cold by LA standards. I mean, it's only like, what, 28 degrees Celsius. Um, uh, I'm, right. I'm trying to convert that into Fahrenheit very quickly and, and can't think off the top of my head. But I'm sure that's yeah. very cold still in terms of from LA standards. That's pretty cold. Still. Well, that, that sounds like it must be pretty nice. I just whenever I go there and it's sunny or hot, I, I mean, I like to go in there and it's it's dark and cloudy and rainy and you need an umbrella. I just that's part of the vibe for me there. When I'm working or doing concerts or recording, it's always great. When it's not like that, I I don't enjoy it as much. Randy, if we go right back to the beginning, was music always a big part of your life growing up? And was there always an aspiration to work within the music industry from an early age? It was from the get-go part of my life, as far as what the second part of what you asked me. The music industry, thinking about, no, that was not ever in my plan. I didn't know about it. I didn't have any aspirations. I just loved, uh, you know, going to the piano. And I started basically taking lessons, uh, very kind of serious classical music. And that's what I did. It, I liked all kinds of music. And I listened to songs on the radio and would go to the theater to see shows and things. But I didn't have any... Um, uh, aspirations or any conceived kind of uh, idea of what I would do with it or if I was going to do it, you know, but it was there from a very early age. And like I said, I, I seriously, you know, would practice and do little recitals and concerts. And when I was a kid, music, it didn't have the same sort of, uh, shall we say, cachet that it has now. What, what it was when I was a kid, you had to play sports. Music was not cool, okay? And, you know, when did music become cool? Not with Elvis Presley. That was a kind of off to the left side. You know, around the Beatles, let's say. Uh -huh. That's when music started becoming cool, when you were a kid, you know? Before that, so I tended to try to be like everybody else and didn't uh, draw too much attention to this thing that I did. Uh, that I went home every day and practiced and did this stuff. And I liked that. It was kind of like my, it wasn't that it was a secret, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't in the school band. I didn't do anything like that. I just quietly kept to myself. 
Oh, interesting. So, so it was very much something you always did on your own. It was never, you know, part of a band or anything like that. On my own. And to this day, I never played in a band. I never collaborated with anybody, even though, yes, I've worked with a billion musicians and the greatest orchestras in the world. And when I used to do my albums, I worked with put great bands together. But I it was always me as a solo person writing, creating, arranging, producing myself. I didn't work with anybody. And that is true all these years later through all these different genres and things that happily I've been able to uh, force my way <laughs> into uh, by chance or luck or whatever it is. Certainly not talent. Anyway, it that's th that's the true thing. And that's one of the reasons why when you just said after kind of music became, became cool as I was getting a little older and some kids, you know, formed a band or they played at these events. My parents didn't think when it became apparent that I may consider this as a career, they didn't think I had like the kind of head for it because I didn't form a band. I wasn't in a group. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go out and play rock and roll. So it was like, oh, this, this kid likes to be behind the piano and play his classical music. They couldn't have ever imagined that, boom, I would get into it very early on, big time, full time doing stuff. But that's one of the reasons that they didn't think that I was going to do anything beside like maybe, you know, teach music in a school or something, which by the way, I was never going to do. <laughs> and in terms of those influences, Randy, I mean, when you were growing up, were you, were you listening heavily to just a lot of classical music or were you listening to different kinds of genres? Not, in, not just playing it, but in your own time as well. No, here, here's the thing. Yeah, the, the answer is yes. I was listening to classical music and loving it. There was obviously something very stirring, you know, inside me that this music tapped. But I was also, more importantly, playing it. I mean, when I said I was taking lessons, it was serious shit. I mean, I was coming home and practicing several hours a day. You know, you can't make a kid do that. It was sort of about trying to accomplish something and, you know, learning a difficult piece. And I think that's something that you can't really uh, make somebody do. You have to want that. So I wanted to like master a, a certain piece of music or a difficult piece. But I always, always from very early on, like to listen to the radio and listen to tunes, which I would pick out by ear because I didn't have any music written down and play them. And the thing early on that I love doing, which is kind of interesting, I love, of course, I listened to the songs and the melody, and the, mm. but what I was listening for, interestingly enough, were the arrangements the string playing in the background, a horn solo, that kind of stuff. And I would like kill myself to try to stick my ear. This is at the age of eight or nine or 10 to the speakers, which weren't very good in, in my house and listen to these parts. So early on, there was this thing about listening to arrangements and, and, and things like that, not just the song and the singer, but the background singers and the and the orchestra parts, which there started to be at that time, they started to put these, you know, string parts over like R and B songs and all that kind of stuff, and and that's what kind of uh, I didn't realize at the time. 
but it was a real interest of mine. And a lot of times I would, when everybody was out of my house and I started buying like 45s, I would put these records on and in my living room, close the, the blinds and like act like I was conducting an orchestra, the tracks for these pop songs. I did that for years. <laughs> Obviously, there was something going on, you know. So that was important. Along with the classical music, I was doing that and, you know, loved pop music and started, you know, getting, you know, into listening to that and blah, blah, blah. That's So there were two things coinciding while I was growing up. The, the sort of pop thing and the uh, the classical thing. And the pop thing was, like I said, a very kind of idiosyncratic kind of thing that I was into. But obviously my my brain was working because I was trying to pick apart these records. And, um, you know, when songs started becoming a little more sophisticated than just the one, four, five blues changes that a lot of pop music was then i really got interested in because you couldn't just go to the piano and plunk these things out you had to like listen to all those early burt backrack songs because the changes were really different and wild and you know that's what was going on that's what was going on with me <laughs> we touched on the orchestra there and i know you began uh, your career playing in pit orchestras on broadway so i wondered how that experience uh, came about and what your major memories were at that time. I did play in a couple of uh, orchestras, but when I got out of a very serious music conservatory and I went to New York and I was doing different things, I was very fortunate that I got these jobs. I mean, uh, every, every quote piano player in New York wants a job in the pit of a Broadway show. That's a primo job. Uh -huh. doesn't sound that um you know uh, wonderful now or with stuff other stuff going on but it was really something and i was fortunate enough and i was really uh you know i was really a good musician and that's always what i always wanted to consider myself not a not an artist not a film composer i'm basically uh a musician and i really uh was well trained and well schooled and could play a lot of different styles so the period when you asked me that 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 was a very short time. It's not like I spent years in that area. I did it quickly. And as other things that happened, especially that happened to me, there's always a twist. You know, you have to be you have to be great at what you do, granted and disciplined. Um, but there has to be a little luck in there. And um, so from that playing the pit as a young kid, everybody else in the orchestra were more experienced uh, musicians and who had played in maybe 50, 60, 100 shows on Broadway. I don't know. But I was like a young kid and um, uh, something happened and the, the person that was a star of the show, you know, plunked me out and asked me to do a, a, an arrangement for, she was appearing on like the Tonight Show, which was a huge thing here in England. You, 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 you know, the Tonight Show, Johnny Carson show. Yeah, yeah. And I did. And then that led to, me becoming at a very uh, young age, um, like a music director for lots of singers, singers that were my, you know, whether it was Dionne Warwick or Pet Clark or Jackie DeShannon. Um, these were people whose records, those 45s, a very short amount of years before that 
We're not talking, you know, we're talking about someone who's 19 or 20, and we're talking about when I was 14 or 15. Anyway, so that was a whole different thing. But what I wanted to say to you was, it was a very quick jump that I took uh, from going to New York and these playing on Broadway, then roaming around the country as a musical director, as a very, I wasn't even allowed my first job in Vegas. Uh, and I was conducting in the main room at Caesar's Palace. Uh, I couldn't get in. I had to sign a waiver because I was 21 or under wow. that, you know. So I was, but of course, I was loving it because I was the kid in the living room mm. faking. And suddenly the kid who was faking it, a fairly short amount of time later, was doing it. So during this period that I'm talking about, when I was, after I was playing on, on Broadway and then these these women, it's always about a woman, you know, <laughs> uh, which is, and I haven't even gotten, and I won't go back for that because it's always about a girl. And that's how I started writing songs, bullshitting that I was a songwriter. I wasn't a songwriter. I never wrote a song, but it was a way that I could go out with like a girl who I saw on a rock band or something, you know, so I faked it. Uh, and in doing so, James Brown saw me in his studio and uh, conducting an, an arrangement for one of these silly songs I had written for this girl. And they hired me as a, uh, an arranger at King Records in Cincinnati that was their R&B label. And, and so I got a little experience here. But OK, I'll jump. I'll, I'll jump ahead. So while I was conducting for some of these people in Las Vegas and stuff like that, that was when the music business, it had changed before that. The music business was before, way before that, was the following as far as records. A music publisher took a song to a record producer at a label who had an artist who was on that record label, and they took a song to them. Mm. That's how records were made. Music publisher, record producer. Record producer at a label takes it to one of several artists who were signed to them at their record label to do. Obviously, long before that, music business changed. Why did it change? 99% of the people selling records wrote their own music. It doesn't matter if it was Bob Dylan or the Beatles or the Eagles or James Taylor or Elton John or Calgary. You know, the whole... Now, there were a few artists who were still selling records, who would record, quote, outside songs. But the bottom line is, if you were a songwriter at that time, you better figure out a way to get your stuff recorded. And you know what? It wasn't trying to get anybody a recorded song. So guess what? You had to do it yourself. Now, I had never sung. I hadn't written lyrics or songs, but I was into it. I started listening which I did before that, to all these albums. Obviously, I heard the Beatles albums and a lot of these solo artists. And again, if you'll listen like to some of these early albums, like the early Elton John album, you heard all these wonderful Paul Buckmaster string arrangements. Gorgeous stuff. Beautiful stuff. So this all harkens back to what I told you before. So I got sucked in, and there were other people too, to people who did these albums and I liked the songs, but I loved the production and arrangement of it, which obviously I had been into. And what that did is that suddenly made me believe, especially while I was out conducting on the, you know, the road, so to speak, and conducting for these singers in these nightclubs and Vegas and stuff. I suddenly sat down and said, you know what? I can do this. 
And so I did it. I signed like a recording contract with a little company and signed like a hundred page um, form contract, you know, without a lawyer. And I figured, hey, I've written these songs. I'll go in and do them and nothing will happen or it will. And I'll, that'll be it. And of course, it, it very much did happen, Randy. And whereabouts do you sort of pinpoint that moment where sort of your big break came? There were a few people selling a lot of records who didn't record their own material. And one of them who were a throwback at the time, because what they were, the, the records of theirs that were selling couldn't be more opposed to what was happening. Um, you know, it was the time of Woodstock and, you know, in the music business, the, everything had changed and, you know, all these things were going on. But there was the this group, it was a group. Basically, it, they were young kids like me, but they were selling zillions of records and they were a brother and sister act from connecticut who had come to california and their names were karen and richard carpenter uh-huh. and they heard this album too long a story won't go there at all <laughs> and they not only recorded it richard the brother who was a very very good uh musician and arranger kind of the brains behind their records which were very well recorded and crafted and arranged he really got into me so much so that they not only recorded a couple of these things, odd things, by the way, that I wrote, really <laughs> not commercial at all, but they said, you know what? We're going to take you out as our opening act. Now, you got to understand wow. they were big. We're talking about big places. So here I am. I had done this album. The only time I had sung and the only songs I had written were the 10 songs on that album that I had done vocals on. So I had never sung for my mother or my family or my friend, not, nothing. But I had done that album. And, and uh, Richard and Karen <laughs> thought it was like, this is it, man. This guy is. And they take me out. And, you know, I get thrown at a piano in front of like 15,000 people at the first concert. Wow. Yeah. The good thing was, if I was in like a club or a small setting, I would have been nervous because you just mm. get nervous, especially something you never did before. But the settings on this stuff was so insane. First of all, you were removed from the audience. You know, there was a large distance. Mm. They had these huge, you know, sound and light systems. So you went out there, you were, I don't know how many feet from the actual audience. There was like a, you know, a space and then a stage, and then you were back in the lighting. So there, what I'm saying is there was no interaction uh-huh. between the audience. You know what I mean? I was too far. They didn't know who the hell I was. And I'm singing these songs. What songs am I singing? The only 10 damn songs I knew. <laughs> the songs on the album. Anyway, that was my start. Anyway, it went great, except the, the fact that I didn't really have any clothes. So I, I wanted to get something which I thought would be cool uh, which is a funny word to use for my, what I'm about to tell you. I went out and I got this cool turtleneck sweater. <laughs> that was my outfit and corduroy pants. Nice. Don't ask why, but I we were in the doing these like big colleges. I think yeah, out west. It was the winter. Well, guess what? I found out under these lights that make it like a thousand degrees. <laughs> you don't wear a woolen turtleneck sweater so i was sweating the water was 
it got so bad that the keys on the piano were like a river, you know? Yeah. I couldn't really keep my hands on the piano. And so that was that. A few days after I'm doing these concerts with the Carpenters, I get a call from the agency, one of these big agencies who they were with that naturally I was with just because when I when they wanted me to tour with them, I had to have an agent. Mm-hmm. And I get a call from them and they say, listen, uh, we've checked the schedule of the Carpenters. You're free next week, let's say next Thursday night. And you're going to be in Dallas. They said, we've got something we want you to do. We want you to do your opening act for somebody in front of somebody else. Ah. So I think I was fine. Okay. You know who it was? Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. No. Yes. What did I know how to do? I didn't know how to do anything. I, I was a great musician. I could give a concert. But as far as going up and doing my opening act, yeah, I could do that act. I could do those 10 songs. Now, you can imagine the difference in the audience between a Carpenter concert and a Frank Zappa concert. I went ahead and did it. And the story and the stories from that are insane. But so that's how I got my feet wet it, performing those two different kinds of, you know, with Frank Zappa, people were throwing shit at me. <laughs> Get off the stage. You know, and I never looked up once. You talk about not, of course, they were in really good sized places, but not those field houses. They were more in concert hall settings. So I could hear when they were yelling shit and throwing stuff at me, you know, and doing like 45 minutes in one of those concerts. Then that's like doing 45 hours. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that's a long time. I tell you that that Carpenter story, Randy, might be one of the most incredible things I've ever heard in all the episodes of this show we've done. I, I cannot believe oh. your first public performance was supporting. Oh the my Carpenters. God. Yeah. Yeah. It was. And I'll never forget because like I'm standing there looking out. This is before I'm dressed in the turtleneck sweater and the corduroy pants, ready to go out, like saying, this is not happening. I mean, there's no way to go from here to where I was 12 months ago, let alone. And a guy gets up. Now, here's me, uh, a little Jewish guy from New Jersey, right? This Mormon priest or something gets up and he says, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to witness the most people who have ever come to a musical event in the state of the history of Utah. Oh, you know wow. what I mean? Oh, wow. That Right, right. And then like, well, that's, you know, there's all kinds of things that that involves, you know. But this was, he said, like, okay, there's more people here now for a, quote, music event. That means the Beatles had been there, uh-huh. the, the, you know, the opera, the Mormon tablet, all this stuff. But this thing was the the most attended concert and that's what i walked out to well actually and after that it just became a joke you know so i sat down couldn't see anything couldn't really hear myself and you know just went out and i did the songs and um sweated and i'll never forget i walked off the stage and this sweet girl karen carpenter with that angelic voice they were like literally standing there and they said you were great oh wow i mean make it makes me cry when I think about it, of course, because of this, what happened. But uh-huh. yeah, they were so, I mean, I was great. I was sweating. I couldn't hear anything, but they loved these songs. Now, Randy, we've reached a part of the show where I have to ask you, what is the worst gift you've ever been given? Well, it's one that I'm actually wearing right now. It's, 
them very horrible looking pajama bottoms. There used to be a show on, uh, it may have been in England. I mean, it's a long time ago called the golden girls about three older yeah, women. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know why I was given this gift recently by someone who you may know. And it's, um, it's disgusting. And I never thought that I would even, I mean, basically I wanted to come home and throw them in the trash, but I didn't. And when I was asked this before by you, you know, I ran in and put them on. So it's not only the worst gift ever given, but I'm wearing them right now. So jumping forward after your experience with the Carpenters, you had some success certainly here in the UK. Tell me a bit more about your experiences here. Over the next several years, I did several albums. I kept, it wasn't like I thought, like, you'll do an album, it doesn't sell, no one's going to blah, blah, blah. It didn't happen like that because there was enough stuff going on and people liking me and the material that it didn't seem to matter. Here I am, it's the fourth album, nothing happens. And of course, they always released the wrong records as singles you know yeah, yeah. they just would they would pick the obvious three minute hooky commercial thing and it always drove me crazy but because when you don't have success selling records you can't argue with these people who are running a record label you know they're the you know so or you get thought of as being you know this guy's a problem you know he's not cooperative so i had to play the game so i always wrote a few of those ditties which thank god didn't happen so on my fourth thing the album comes out. They released what I thought was the wrong single. Nothing's happening. And I'm saying, I got to look for a new gig because <laughs> this is not happening. And that's when, for some reason, they sent me on a promotion tour to Europe. Nothing was happening. But I went around to some places. I had gone to an, a, what was then, I'll say, a new station, maybe it was it, in London. Because in London, you had to have a record on the BBC or it was never going to happen. Uh-huh. But this other station started. It was called Capital Radio. Yeah. And. I went there and they, I think I sat down and played the piano for some show. They sort of reacted and they really loved my album. The other thing was an oldie idea. See, after doing all those albums, I tried to come up with something that would be commercial. So I took a song I heard when I was a kid called Concrete and Clay, rearranged it and did it. And I put it on that album at the time. It was people weren't doing oldies. So it wasn't like a cool thing, wow. but I took a chance to did it. Well, they really said, this thing is fantastic. And I went back to LA and about a week or two later, I heard, you know what? They said they would play it. Sure enough, they released it. And within literally a week or two, they were calling me saying, you know, it sold 10 copies. It sold 50. It sold 100. It sold 1,000. And within a very short time, I had a true, real hit record. After all these albums and all these songs, I had done this oldie, completely rewrote it and rearranged it. And it was a smash hit in London. So much so that I got a call. You have to come over here and do this TV show. The name of the show was The Top of the Pops. Uh The other song was a song called The Uptown Uptempo Woman and The Downtown Downbeat Guy that nobody over here, when they heard the album, they literally would take the, when there used to be records, I mean, now, of course, there is again, and they would skip that song. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's how much they didn't think of that song. The people at Capitol really... I went on a couple after when I went back and the concrete and clay was happening and they convinced the record company there 
to release that song as a single. And well, you know, I go to London, you go to London today and you'll hear that song, this thing. I'm sitting at the piano, not playing very well. I haven't played it, but you know what I'm talking about. It became a real, and it's a story song and it's sort of iconic, but never in my, in a million years did I ever consider that that would be a, a record or that somebody would put out or that people would like it. And of course that cemented a certain place for me over there for, you know, uh, as, you know, as an artist, but guess what? The truth is back here, none of that stuff ever happened. Not even a bit. You've written a host of songs that have been covered by some of the biggest artists in the world. Was all of this writing happening around the same time as well? Another one people hated and wanted me also to take off the album is called A Weekend in New England, which right at that time, I got a call. Barry Manilow had just become really hot as an artist in the United States. The head of his label really liked the song and he called me in my hotel in London right at that time. I had just done coming back from doing Top of the Pops. And he said, I really like that song. I love the chorus, but you need to rewrite it. Well, it's like, hey, excuse me. Now I'm a big shot, right? (laughs) I've got a hit in London. I'm not going to rewrite a song. Luckily, though, I had enough sense to go down that night in the hotel after they closed the bar. The chorus stayed the same. The words stayed the same. Everything stayed the same except for the verses, which I made very simple and very much like the chorus. And the next morning I sent it over to Clive Davis at his hotel and forgot about it. You know, I didn't make a copy of it. I think I sent over a cassette. I never kept a copy. And within a couple of weeks, he recorded the song and that became my first, you know, hit record here, you know, that I had written. Alongside your own music career, you've also gained a huge status as a composer for scoring many films that a lot of people listening here will surely have seen. How did you first get into the movie scoring business? Because that's very, very different to composing pop records. You can do a film or two or a TV series. There's got to be a little something that happens that gets you into doing something that's mainstream. Uh, Like I said, no matter how good you are, no matter how talented you are, there has to be that. And for me, it was a director by the name of Ivan Reitman, who of course you know of, who had directed and produced Animal House and Meatballs and Stripes and Ghostbusters. And he, there was a film called Twins, which was a big concept film. And there was two big stars at the time, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. And they brought me into that after I had done you know, few scoring things, including a series that became on, went on forever. That was terrible when we did the pilot and I wrote the theme called MacGyver. Mm. I don't know if MacGyver was in England. I guess it was. Yeah, it was a bit before my time. I'm a bit too young for MacGyver, but I know of MacGyver. Yeah, well, it was a big deal. And um, it it wasn't a, it, in turn. It just was on a long time and then it was still going on. Um, and I had written a theme. And so I'd done some things. And anyway, I got brought in to do part of the music for uh for for this picture twins and that was the thing the picture was a huge hit and that was the thing that led ivan reitman into me doing uh kindergarten cop and the sequel to the biggest comedy of all time which was ghostbusters so i did ghostbusters 2 i mention that now because sony classical is releasing this week it's a huge orchestra score to ghostbusters 2 and you say what 
Yes. It's 30 years later, but I won't get into the story. But anyway, it is true. And it's, a, it's coming out this week, next week. And So when you're scoring films, Randy, what does that process tend to look like for you? You get the picture every second of it. You're scoring to every mm. frame. You, now, does it have to be the final edit? No, it could be a rough cut. But you're, you know, uh, it depends. Every film has a different story. And you, people will say, well, how much time do you have? Two weeks? No, it may be two years, oh, not wow. two years, but two months. Yeah. When you get a picture, which is usually when, when it's edited, even though they may fine tune the edit, and then you have as much time depending on now, of course, the business has changed. Everything's on Netflix and, you know, <laughs> so I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, it doesn't change the fact that you still get the, the film. You look at it, you have a certain amount of time, and then the director comes over and drives you fucking crazy. And uh, you get the entire movie in pretty decent form, uh, and then you work on it. And uh, television is different, though I didn't I haven't done that much television, but you work with producers and studios with film, film is the director's medium. The only person that means anything to the composer is the director. And the director is the one that makes the decisions about every single second of music, where it goes, what it is. I spent most of the first series of this show, Randy, asking all of my guests what they were currently working on whilst locked down due to the pandemic. But now we're hopefully coming out of the other side. What are you currently working on for the rest of 2021? One of the things, one of the reasons that we're, we're talking is... After all those years when I said I wasn't writing songs and blah, 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 I came up with an idea, not a serious idea about the COVID, you know, but it's got a little message in there. And I woke up one night and had this kind of fun idea in my head about what's going to happen when this thing is over and we can all get out and get dressed and go out to dinner and go to see a concert. And I wrote this thing. And I came outside like the next morning because I kind of sang the idea of the lyric and a bit of a, a chorus melody into my phone at night. And then I uh, uh, came out here and I started working on it and it became like a little fun project. I swear to God, I didn't think of it like, oh, this is my way back into my singer songwriting thing at all. And when I got done with it, I liked it and... I let a couple of people hear it and everyone seemed to really like it. And it led to me working with some really great, uh, cool people in New York to uh, release it. And they, they have a little while ago and it's really uh, creating a little uh, stir. Okay. Shall we say. Mm. And so I'm really into it and doing a lot of these, these uh, shows, which, and all this will of course lead to a new album of new songs of which, you know, I have quite a bit of. And that's that's that. Also, I mentioned to you that this big score that I'd written years ago to Ghostbusters 2, uh, Sony Masterworks is releasing it uh, next week or in two weeks. It's been a lot of work, and I won't get into the story of why it's been so long. Another good story. Um, but it's coming out, and I had to actually do a lot of work on it to get it to sound the way I wanted. That's cool. I'm also finishing my musical, which I've been working on for years called shortcut and shortcut is simply, uh, this about one of the greatest epic stories of the last couple hundred years, which is the building of the Panama canal, which literally 
as as important and big as when going to the moon 70 or 80 years ago, whenever yeah. that was. That's how big it was. I'm in there with a great writer and we're working and we're I'm done with, you know, there's like two hours of music, period music, um, kind of ragtime and other stuff that took place around the, the turn of the century, the, you know, 1900s and songs, you know, a lot of big ballads and then funny, quirky things about what else? Mosquitoes, you know. And uh, anyway, that's it. That's that. I have a couple of questions to wrap up with that I ask everybody, which okay. the first one is, if you could go right back to your childhood and rescue a gift you had as a kid that you don't have now, what would you go and rescue? Um, I'm thinking, I'm th no, seriously, rescue a gift. Oh, my baritone ukulele. Nice. I don't, I, I have a regular, I can't, well, I don't know what happened to it, but I really like to have that back. And the final one is if you could go right back to the beginning of your career and give yourself a gift to help to get where you are now, what gift would you give yourself? A, <laughs> a bottle of bourbon. Because <laughs> <laughs> I never, I started, kind of got into martinis. No, no I never uh, drank or anything. I needed something to get through. But I did. I got through anyway. So, you know, just something to uh, uh, give me, a, you know, a little strength at times when I needed it, because obviously we're doing this now, uh, all these years later. And believe me, when you're uh, going into the world and there's no connection with anybody in the business, and I always considered it like I went, especially my family, you know, people were, you know, they had long-term uh, positions and jobs or they were, you know, uh, professional lawyer or something like that i went out basically with no net <laughs> so there was no landing thing so anything that uh so you know once in a while i went through some uh difficult uh you know times and then looking back you said hey if you know it's just like the old story you know when one door closes another one opens and you just got to keep uh plugging along which i did and it gave me this, I'm um, very gratified to have had this really cool, very unique musical career in so many different areas. As I told you before, I am sometimes accused of being the son of myself. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Randy, where can people find out more about you and what you do? There's my website, which is just, you know, www.randyedelman.com. And also what's great now is anything that someone likes. I don't care if it's a song from an album that's hard to get or a film score you like, a piece of music, because just about all my film scores after I started are released as soundtracks on some yes. really cool labels. You just put in Randy Edelman YouTube, the name of the film or the piece or the song, and God, nine times out of ten, I mean, only recently did I discover this. You, It's right there. And you know what? With these phones now... It sounds clear and, and great. So you can, anything that you're, even stuff, I'm talking about obscure stuff, obscure songs, obscure music to films that maybe didn't really get exposed. If I did the score, there usually is a soundtrack and you put the film in there and my name in YouTube, it, it will come up. 
Yeah. And it's, it's actually, I was, I mean, I'm still, it's crazy, but, and, and it's, it's that fast and it sounds good. There's these other things that now that I'm made to go on social media, a word, two words that I'm not a big fan of, but (laughs) I think this is great. And it's been great talking to you and I got to get back to, uh, boy, I got to get back there. I get really literally homesick for, for London. Oh, I hope I hope it's not too long until you can come back here, Randy. It'd be great yeah. to see you. It'd be so yeah. great to see you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Me too. Just a blast. Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can find us on both Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod, as well as online at badgiftspod.com. <laughs>